you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans chapter 12. This week and next week, I'm going to finish our discussion on contending together for the faith of the gospel, which has been rooted in a text out of Philippians chapter 1, uh, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church and is directing them to commit to standing together so that they can effectively accomplish the work of God in terms of taking the gospel of Christ to the nations and in terms of growing to be a body where God can be glorified. We were at this text a few weeks ago, and I want to come back to verses 3 through 8 this morning. And then the rest of the chapter is what I'd like to touch base on next Sunday morning. And it is primarily a discussion on how do you honor God and live for God's glory and stay committed in a context where the people that you were called by God to serve with are imperfect. Where they at times will let you down and become a source of severe disappointment in your life. How do you function in that environment? Not only within the church, but also outside of the church. Okay, so next Sunday morning, if you want to read ahead, read verses 9 down through verse 21. That's the text that we'll be looking at next Sunday morning. But for today, I want us to look at the topic of contending together in the context of verses 3 through 8 of Romans 12. Let's read this passage of scripture together. Would you follow along with me? For by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you, and let me just comment on this real quick. By the grace of God, that is probably Paul's referencing to the grace gift of apostleship. Okay, his God-given task in leading and directing many churches early on for the glory of God to get the message of Christ out to the world. His calling as an apostle to speak authoritatively to the church about how they in this chapter should live together, contend together for the gospel and for the glory of God. So Paul writes out of his spiritual gift, addressing the topic of spiritual gifts. Okay, because the question is, how does the church get along? What are the values that will make the church strong and effective as God's instrument and tool? So he says, by the grace of God, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Clearly, there is an overtone of warning and concern on the part of the Apostle Paul. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Judgment that is in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ's body implied, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it. In proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now, let me just make this observation. The list of spiritual gifts given here is only uh, topped in shortness when you go to First Peter chapter 4. Okay, the most extensive gifts or list of spiritual gifts are found in the book of 1 Corinthians. Here you find a a list with seven gifts. In Philippians, you find an even shorter list. Okay, because Paul's purpose and concern is not to be sure that every time he's touched on the topic of spiritual gifts, he mentions everyone that could possibly exist. It's not the focus. 
Okay, the focus isn't so that I can say, okay, now I know what all the possible spiritual gifts are in the church. No, he's more concerned about relationships in terms of the body of Christ, and that's the topic he is addressing. How do we stand together more effectively? And obviously, he begins this discussion with a deep concern about the issue of self-sufficiency, independence, or pride. Okay, he is concerned that believers in the church will think that they can go it alone, and in doing that, they will destroy their effectiveness according to God's plan. God's plan is that we serve him together, which brings us to a discussion about the church. We are called the chapel at Warren Valley, and we say that we are a church of Jesus Christ. What kind of church are we? If you think in terms of uh, biblical theology categories, what kind of a church is the chapel at Warren Valley from a biblical perspective? Take a shot. Don't be afraid to be wrong. I promise not to correct. I'm very humble this morning after last night. Okay? What's the, what's the word to describe the kind of church that we are? And there's another kind of church that exists in the world that God has ordained also. You know what the two words are? Okay, we're, we're, we're an evangelical church, okay, because we are about the gospel, but we are an evangelical church in a geographic location. So we are a, the Chapel of Warren Valley is a local church, okay, and we are part of a bigger picture that God is working out called the universal church. Okay, a lot of what Billy Graham uh, or Franklin Graham is doing is about the universal church. He's reaching out to many churches, which are the only way he can get in touch with the universal church is through what means local churches. Okay, so when you read through the Bible, you will find descriptions about the church that understand it as the church universal, all believers of all times. Matthew 16, 18 tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God who purchased the church, was committed to the success of the church. Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, the emphasis there is on the church universal. All believers of all time triumphant by the power of God. That is what we are part of. There is a larger picture that works out in what we call local outcroppings in various geographic areas. Okay? So when you read your New Testament, you find the letter to the churches in Galatia. Okay? The book of Galatians. That's how Paul starts that letter. To the churches in Galatia, which means he's addressing a plurality of churches. He's not talking about the church universal. He's talking about local manifestations of the body of Christ. Okay, but then you can find first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says, to the church that resides in Corinth. Okay, now where is he? Is he at the universal level or at the local level? Okay, what is he doing? He's speaking to the church at the local level. In fact, when you read the majority of Paul's letters, they are written to the church local. Okay, now here's my conviction. God is concerning himself with the church universal. He wants us to concern ourselves primarily, though not exclusively, with the church local. Okay, it's not that he wants us to ignore the reality of the church universal. And we, through mission, seek to encourage the church universal, the church that we can't see. It doesn't all gather together somewhere. So the directives that are given in the New Testament are given to believers who live in local communities of believers. Identifiable and visible. Whereas the larger picture of what God's doing, no hum God can see it. He can take care of that. I can't see it. Can't even begin to take care of it. 
Okay, so when you read the instructions in the New Testament, God is telling us how by his spirit and gifting, he desires to make the church strong through local manifestations so that the bigger picture of the church universal is strengthened and the glory of God is advanced. That's an important background to this discussion. Okay, now in verse 3, Paul, I told you, addresses an apparent concern or fear that he has for this church in Rome. He says in the middle of verse 3, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance to the measure of faith that God has given you. Don't think high thoughts and proud thoughts about yourself. And the question I want to float out to you is this. What would proud or overly exalted thoughts be? What is it that Paul is telling them to avoid? I want to let that question hang in your minds till I get to the end. Okay, what would these overly high self-estimations be? and, and, And whatever they are, they have a direct relationship to the nature of the local church that is addressed in this passage. Okay, so he brings up a concern that believers may cultivate an attitude of self-sufficiency or independence. Okay, that'll be a hint that I'll just lay out in front of you. Okay, and he's going to call them in a different direction. The thrust then of this passage is think properly about yourself. Okay, think properly about yourself. The word think in verse 3 is used uh, or, yeah, in, in, in verse 3 is used four times. In the original language, it's four times. In most translations, it's there, I think, two times. Okay? Because the verb becomes assumed in the way that the statements are made. Okay? So four times in one verse, Paul talks about how we think about and reason about and look at ourselves, how we assess ourselves. He is deeply concerned about how you see yourself as it relates to the topic of the work of the Spirit through spiritual gifts. So here's the the command that I think governs this text. Think properly about yourself. Think accurately about yourself. And as I was studying this, here's the echo in my mind was Philippians 2, verse 5, that we looked at a few weeks ago, right? Fascinating. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's concern for the church in Philippi, how they see themselves in relationship to one another in the local outworkings of the body of Christ because it will dramatically impact either positively or negatively how the church stands together as the instrument of God to reach the world around us. In verse 3, he also uses a fascinating word, the measure of faith. The word here in the Greek is metron, If you are familiar with music at all, and I'm not an expert in this area, so I fear every time I use an illustration that's outside of, if I have any areas of expertise, it's outside of it, but the metronome that you use for measuring beats with the piano, okay? Or when we talk about a meter, what does a meter do? It measures things out, okay? And I don't know if the word meter in terms of, uh, you know, European measurements is, is, is the same word here. I think that it is, but I'm not positive about that. But what is Paul saying? He says... Think of yourself in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. And here's the question. Don't think too highly of yourself. Think accurately, humbly. And you will do that when you measure yourself according to two things in this text. One thing is the measure of faith that is given to you. And one thing is spiritual gifts that are given to you. 
Okay, so there are two means that Paul's going to recommend that the church use as they measure themselves. Measure yourself, first of all, then by God's gospel. Verse 3, he says, think of yourself in accordance to the, or in relationship to the measure of faith that God has given you. Now, this could move you in two ways. It could be faith expressed in speaking gifts in the context of church life. But I think the more likely lean in this text is the faith that brings all believers into a relationship with God by grace. Okay, that that faith that one receives is in fact a gift from God. The passage that floats in my mind is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through what? Faith. And that faith is what? It's not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Okay, here's the bottom line, I believe, that Paul's going after. Think of yourselves in accordance to the measure of faith. Every believer who has come to faith in Jesus Christ has come to faith in Jesus Christ because of a prior work of God who attracted them to the gospel that was repulsive to them as a sinner. He made the glory of Christ attractive and he birthed within that individual a desire to trust in the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. It's the only understanding I can come away from Ephesians 2.8 with. And that faith that is a gift from God is what is common to every believer. Everyone who is in Christ has experienced the same thing. They have placed, by the grace of God, saving faith in Christ crucified. Verse 9, he goes on to say this. And this is the effect of that gift of faith. By grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Verse 9. That salvation that comes by faith is not of works so that what? No one can boast. Okay, now, that should start to give you a hint of a connection here. In Romans 12, 3, Paul's concern is that they would think of themselves too highly. And then he goes to the measure of faith and says, wait a minute. If you are thinking of yourself in an over-exalted frame of mind as you stand in the church, thinking of yourself better than others because of your status in Christ, remember that your status is achieved on the same basis. God awakened in your heart a desire to believe, to repent and confess and trust Christ. And you are in Christ as a result of that work of God. And in Ephesians 2, Paul is very clear. God did it this way. So the Tim Hoff can't get up in front of church and make any boast. And so that when we get to heaven, I'm not going to bump into anyone that's there and say, oh, how'd you get here? It won't, there won't, there will, that will never, think of this. Think of being in a place for eternity where everyone is there, who is there, is there for the same reason. And that is the measure of faith that God gives to rebels and he awakens a dead heart. Ephesians 2, 4. Don't miss the connection. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And if you have trusted Christ, something had to awaken your dead heart so that you would desire something that you would never desire in and of yourself. Because the Bible says no one seeks after God. So if you are in Christ, Paul's saying, let's kill these issues of pride. Let's do it at the foot of the cross where each believer looks with eyes of faith as a grace gift from God and receives the work of God through Jesus Christ. And everyone there has no ground of boasting because all who enter 
into the church come by grace. Folks, let that sink in. Let that kill pride and promote an appropriate self-understanding, an accurate estimation of ourselves. What are we at the end of the day? We're sinners who are saved by grace, who have been delivered by the rebellion by a God who confronted it through his son, Jesus Christ. And he gives us this gift, a desire to believe. And he changes our life forever. Paul says, if you want a measure to measure yourself with, it will humble you and drop you to your knees before God. Think about the faith that he gave you when you trusted Christ. And the apostle Paul, this is so close to his heart. He can say, look, Acts 9, I was the chiefest of sinners and I was confronted by sovereign grace that struck me to my knees. I was a rebel. I was vehement. I was flaming against the church of Christ. And all of a sudden, in a moment, he is a different man. Does Paul ever attribute it to his choice? Mm, Nope. Paul only attributes it to the grace of God that confronted him in his sin, dropped him to his knees and changed his heart. And for Paul, that was a cause for deep humility. And it has the same effect on every Christian. Measure yourself by God's gospel. Second thought that emerges in verses 4 through 8 is this. Just as each one, verse 4, just as each one has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so it is in Christ. We who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. And then he goes into the list of spiritual gifts. Okay, what is the second measure that we can use that will bring us to a place of humility in our Christian experience. I believe the second measure is this. It is the gifts of God. If you have a capacity to effectively serve God in the context of the church, it should not produce pride. Why? Because that capacity and that ability is a result of the Spirit of God's work in your life. Folks, do you understand what Paul's saying? He's saying, hey, have an accurate self-understanding. Why? You came into Christ on the same basis. There's no room for boasting at the cross. And if you are effective in a particular area of ministry, God is giving you that capacity. It harkens back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Lucas, I'm fascinated by your gifts, okay, with piano. All right, I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm going to use you as an illustration, okay? God gave you a gift, and I know in talking with you that you see it that way, okay? If I had that gift, I'd be proud. I would be pretty much unbearable, (laughs) okay? I know why God made me an average person, average pastor. It's in his wisdom, believe me. If God gives someone the ability like Lucas has from young to be able to play like that, and Lucas went around bragging about this ability that he didn't really have to work it as hard as other people what would you think anything else if that's natural talent then it's kind of hard to if you were born that way do you see every gift you have every gift you exercise in the context of the church the body of christ should bring us down it should humble us it should cause us to be grateful before god It should kill pride. Measure yourself by the faith that God gave you. And let it drop you to your knees. Look at the gifts and capacities that God has given you. Whether they are visible or unseen. It doesn't matter. That passion, that desire to be effective 
for God is a gift from him. Let that humble you so that you are tolerable in terms of your relationship to the broader picture of the body of Christ. Three truths emerge from this measure. Okay, three understandings of how the church functions emerge from this idea of measuring ourselves according to God's gospel and God's gifts. Three thoughts, and then then I'm just going to draw some conclusions. One is this. We all, in light of this design, need each other. Look at verse 5. In light of God's design, we all need each other. So in Christ, verse 5 says, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have a relationship of interdependence with one another by God's design. He doesn't give everybody in the church the same gifts. It's fascinating when you start to unpack church life and see the variety of gifts that God gives to people to make the church strong. Because then we realize, hey, I can, I can do this to the degree that I do it. Okay, with the level of effectiveness that God wants me to have. I can't play guitar. If I got up and played guitar in Carmel's place, you would all leave, I promise. It would be, it, it would be tough for me and it would be tough for you. Okay, why? I don't have that gift. Some people have gifts in terms of finances. Some people have gifts in terms of mercy and encouragement. And you could just go on and on speaking, speaking into someone's life. A specific word for a moment, gift of prophecy. Okay, God has given to people unique capacity. I don't have them all. I don't want them all. Okay, it scares me to death when people talk about this church is my church. It scares me to death. I made a list. I'll tell you this now. I was going to do this later in the sermon. I made a list yesterday. I counted through how many people it takes for us to pull off Sunday morning. How many different people serving in various capacities all around. On my list, I come up with 38 to 40 people for Sunday morning service to happen. That excites me. You know why? Because that means 25% of the people that attend here, I think, do I have this right? 20%-ish, something like that, are actually involved in some type of a ministry that makes an effective service possible today. That excites my heart as a pastor. Why? Because I told you last time, I tend to have a, a, a negative kind of critical take on things. I see what needs to happen, not what is happening. It was a good exercise for me to sit down and realize that we are dependent on each other, that what is happening here on Sunday morning is the result of a work of a lot of people. I don't ever want people to say, I honestly mean this, I don't want people to think it's about me. It scares me. It scares me. And I'm not under the illusion that it is about me, okay? Uh, Certain times you, you say, okay, Pastor, that sermon really touched my heart. I'm going to tell you, is that a weakness? Is that a weakness that God works? And uh, it should keep us humble because we all need each other. Here's the bottom line. The analogy here is that the church is Christ's body. That's the analogy. And the thrust that comes out of it is this. No body part can serve on its own can survive on its own. No part of your body cut off can live. None. Do you understand Paul's fear? If the body of Christ is fragmented, the body of Christ is dying. And only when there is and are vital connections between individuals and the body of Christ, only then can the church thrive. I I want to pastor a church that thrives. I want to serve in a church where people love God and love each other. And where that's the passion... And I want to be part of that. Okay, and there are times that I feel independent. I feel like I just, I want to go it alone. I don't think I can go it alone, but I want to go it alone. If that makes sense. God wants us to work together. We all need each other. Second thought is this. Every believer 
in the church is a minister. A non-serving Christian is a complete contradiction to this passage of Scripture. And a non-serving Christian is a validation of Paul's worst fear. Look at verse 6. He says, we all have different gifts according to the grace that is given to us. And notice this statement. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it. And I think that that verb, let him use it, is a statement that kind of hangs over the rest of the list of gifts. If you have a spiritual gift that God has given you a capacity to encourage others in some way, to serve others in some way, what is Paul saying? Do it. Just do it. It's what the word Nike means. It means just do it. Go accomplish it. Don't sit back and wait for someone to validate and verify your gift. Use it for the glory of God. Come on Sunday morning saying, God, awaken my heart to see someone that I can encourage that you have gifted me to help. Help me to see that. Don't come for what you get. Come to say, God, use me today. Let that be the prayer of our hearts that liberates our church not to survive, but to thrive. Don't be a living contradiction. We are all gifted by him to serve him. And, and as I thought about this, I thought in terms of application, we are called to be like him. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over you. They love to exercise authority and be greeted in the markets and in the places. And then he says this. He says, but I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. That's a measure to measure yourself by. Are you, in terms of your relationship to the body of Christ, one who is like Christ, who serves like Christ serves? The last thought is this, in terms of these outcroppings of measuring yourself by God's gifts. Every ministry in the context of the chapel at Warren Valley is a valuable ministry. Everyone. Everyone. There are no unimportant capacities and abilities that God gives to people. No unimportant ones. There may be less visible ones and there may be prominent ones. The prominent ones are not more important. Okay, the illustration that helps me so much is when you think about an operating room in a hospital and you think that the doctor who performs the brain surgery is the most important person in that room. And I want to beg to differ. Because if that room isn't clean and if the instruments that are used are not sterilized by someone who is less prominent and apparently less gifted from a human perspective, the operation will lead to failure. And we need to do damage to the idea that prominent gifts are important. We need to stop exalting people. We need to start exalting the gifts that God has given and let us give thanks to God for the capacities that he by his grace, has given. So that we as a church would celebrate what is seen and what is unseen. So that we would celebrate what is official and unofficial ministry. So that we would celebrate ministry that is known about and ministry that is unknown. That we would begin to value what everybody in the body of Christ does. Because as they serve, they're becoming like the one who was among us as one who serves. A few thoughts then that emerge out of this text. Measure yourself by God's gospel. Measure yourself by God's gifts. And let them humble you. Applications, a few. Number one, make the local church that has been gifted by God and bought by God, make it your priority in life. 
Make it your priority in life. Okay, here's a simple question for you this morning. Is your relationship to the body of Christ local to the chapel at Warren Valley? Is it a priority in your life? Okay, is it a priority in your life? Or is it something that if you have time, you attend and serve? And if you don't, other things trump. Can I suggest it to you in this way? In terms of your relationships, and I don't, the tension in my mind is this, okay? Because I know in your mind, here's what you're thinking. Well, is the church more important than my family? Okay? Can I tell you something? I don't believe God created two things in conflict with each other. And when people say that to me, I become suspicious of what they're really asking. I've never seen the church in conflict with my family life. Something we do together. Something we participate in together. Something as a dad seeking to, especially as the pastor, okay, seeking to encourage our kids to love the body of Christ. It should never be a secondary thing in our lives. It is, for the Father in heaven, a priority. And the reason I know that is because in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And he builds it through local communities because he gifts local churches to do the work. He doesn't give the church universal. He doesn't give commands and directives to the church universal. He gives them to local outcroppings like the Chapel of Warren Valley where he wants his will to be done, where he gives pastors and teachers to build up the body of Christ for the work of ministry. Study through the text. You will find that there's very little reference to the church universal in terms of function. The passages that talk about function in the body of Christ are talking about the local outcroppings. It is a priority for God. It is the church that he loves with all his heart. Ephesians 5. Jesus calls the church his bride. You know what that is? That is an exclusive commitment. It means this. He loves you as a Christian more than he loves people that do not know him. It is an exclusive love. He loves the church and gave himself up for her. He is purifying her. He wants to present her as a radiant bride. Let this sink in. He sees you purchased by his blood, cleansed by the work of his spirit. He sees you walking down the aisle. Think about this. He sees you. Did Lucas and Marissa's wedding a few weeks ago? How many weeks? What's your anniversary here? Where are we? Five weeks? Get this right. Six weeks, okay. Good job, Lucas. No elbow there, you're safe. Six weeks ago, I watched Marissa walk down the aisle at Perona Farms, and I watched Lucas respond. There is... All right, men aren't supposed to like weddings, right? And I don't, but just this part I like, okay? I love watching the look on the face as the bride turns the corner, radiant in all her glory. And the groom is thinking, she's mine. Someone that beautiful is mine. Folks, do you understand? That's how Christ sees you. And you know what it cost him to bring you down the aisle, spotless? It cost him his life. And he loves the church. 
It shouldn't be down the list. In fact, I'll just be honest. I don't see the Christian life as a list of, well, this is first, then this, then this, then this. I don't see it that way. I see us in the middle, by the power of the Spirit of God, relating to a series of successive priorities that, that revolve around our lives that God wants us to relate to for His glory. And He doesn't want us to see the family in conflict with the church. But a lot of times we, we put them in conflict. And when we do, I think we devalue what God loves. He loves the church. He gifts the church. John Stott says it this way. He says, if the church is central to God's purposes, as seen in both history and in the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly, he asked, what God takes so seriously? And how dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? You see what he's saying? How, how, how do we, as Christians who love Christ, who are part of the church, push it to the periphery, periphery of our life? How do we do that? And John Stott is asking this in a stunned sort of way. How, how do we get there? How do we do it is a question I think we need to ask. I think because we are overcommitted and too busy. We let things like secondary things that aren't going to have an eternal impact on your kids get in the way of their relationship to the church. People make commitments to other things that draw them away regularly from the body of Christ. I don't understand that. I can't get that to synchronize with what the Bible teaches about church life. I can't get it there. It is a priority that should govern all of the decisions and all of the choices that we are making. And here's the question I ask parents. Do you think that your child's participation in this or that event is going to better prepare them for life than the God-ordained tool, which is the church? Do you see the conflict I end up with? Some people say, well, Pastor, what do you think about doing this? If you want, I'm going to give you my honest answer. So if you don't want to hear it, walk away now. Because I believe the church is more important as an institution than anything else. And, and I'm, I'm just going to keep the family and the church and, and God-ordained things all at the same level. I'm not, but when we let things outside of God-ordained priorities govern our decisions and devalue the church, I think there's a problem. I think there's a problem. And I think the problem exists not only in our church, I think it exists in the church throughout America. I listen to people who talk to me about the sacrifices they make for their kids to be involved in athletic activities. And I was just talking with my wife about this yesterday. They completely give up times when they as a family are together regularly. So their kids can play soccer or go to dance. They let it completely disrupt their whole life. And we, we take away from our kids that regular meeting with the family. And I'm not saying there aren't seasons that you do that, but if that is the norm, if you are too busy to sit down with your family and enjoy them, you're outside of God's will in my estimation. And if your capacity, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir this morning, if your capacity to value the body of Christ by attending and receiving the blessings and giving the blessings that God intends for us to give and receive, if your ability to do that is limited by other commitments, you need to think about those commitments. Because the church is his priority. And you can't read the New Testament and not understand the incredible value and importance that God places on the church. And now here's the way I want to say it to you. I believe with all my heart, there is no adequate replacement for God's plan. That goes for your family. It goes for the church. 
There is no adequate, nothing can take the place of your family and your church life. Nothing, nothing. Let us be very clear that I think those are biblically justifiable commitments. Now, when my parents trusted Christ at the age of 30 years old, I was four years old. My dad had a boat and he ran a lawnmower shop that cost him 100 hours a week of his life. Sunday was the day that we went boating. That's what we did. It was the day my dad got to unplug. When my dad got saved, you know what he did? He sold his boat. You know who's thankful for that? I am. I hated it. But I'm thankful for it. Because what my dad said, my dad didn't sit us down and teach us this stuff, okay? I know more. I should be able to do that with my kids. I knew where his commitment was. Christ had changed his life. Because of the gospel and God's gifts, his life was changed. And I benefited from that commitment. And I'm, I'm telling you as a second generation Christian who has the privilege of having third generation Christians in my house, that I'm glad that the Christianity that was passed on to me is committed and devoted to the local church. I'm glad that it was a priority in the home I grew up in. How much of an impact it had in my life? I have to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know. Without it, where would I be? I don't know the answer to that question. But I am thankful that my parents made that kind of a commitment to what mattered to God because it, it radically transformed my life. 1st application, make the church, the local church, a priority in your life. Secondly, be committed to a local church. <clears throat> Verse 4, I just love the way the New International captures this statement. It says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so it is in Christ. We who are many, diverse, form one body, unity, the body of Christ, and each belongs to all the others. Okay, now that is a fascinating statement. Each belongs to all the others. There is some relationship of ownership and responsibility that exists organically in the church as God created it. It's organically there. We each depend on each other. We support each other. We help each other. And that is by God's design. Ephesians 2.19 says this. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And as a result, you are members of God's household. Here's what you'll find. The word members comes up in Romans chapter 12. The word members comes up in Ephesians 2.19. Okay, people say to me, do you think that people should become members of the local church? My answer is, and I know there's some unique family situations within our church body, please, most of you I've talked to about that are in that kind of situation, okay? But I believe this with all my heart. I believe God is committed to the local church and wants us to be committed to it. And the way we express that commitment in our culture, in every other area, is that we join. We make a commitment Whatever the commitment that the organization expects, we make that kind of a commitment because what are we saying in the commitment? I am devoted to this organization. I am devoted to this cause, to this purpose that God, by His grace, has established. 
We are members of each other. We are members of God's household. I think the terminology is, quite frankly, unmistakable. Joshua Harris makes these three suggestions in his book called Stop Dating the Church. He says, if you want to commit to the body of Christ, you join a local church, you make the local church your priority, and you serve in the local church. I like that. You join that local church, you make it your priority, and you serve in the context of that local church. Here's the question I ask you this morning. Are you, are you committed first to the concept of the local church? If you need more help with this, please see me. If you say, Pastor Jim, I struggle with this idea, please see me. I will be more than happy to go through the passage of Scripture that I believe relate to this issue. Why is it so important that we be committed to the local church? And I'm going I'm to state this in a way that I hope is, is as direct as possible without being offensive. Here's the bottom line. If you don't fill your place in the local church, someone else, your brother or sister in Christ, has to carry more of a burden. And it shouldn't be that way. Just simply, it shouldn't be that way. Okay, if you go AWOL, if you just spectate and don't participate. Somebody else is carrying a heavy burden that they shouldn't have to bear because of your negligence and disregard for what God loves. And I think the way we can ask this question is this. Does my level of commitment to the local church match God's? Because let me just be very clear and frank. If anything I'm saying this morning you find to be tainted by my opinion, throw it away. Throw it away. Hold yourself to the higher standard, okay? Because I think God's love for the church is greater than mine, okay? Ask yourself the question, does my love for the church match God's love for the church? And if it doesn't, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Okay, and my desire is that we would be a church that is full of people who are committed to the importance and value of the local church in this area. The last thought I leave you with is, and I think it's an outcropping of it, verse 6. Humbly embrace the give and take design of the local church. Takes me back to the warning from verse 3. Don't think high thoughts about yourself. What would they be? I think what they would be is this. High thoughts about oneself and overly high self-estimation is one who thinks that they do not need a vital connection to the local church. Okay, I think in this passage, thoughts that are too high about yourself are thoughts that believe that I don't need to belong to each other, as God clearly says, and that I don't need the blessing and benefit of spiritual gifts that God has given to the church. The high thoughts are thoughts of independence. And we live in a culture that promotes individualism. If you're not aware of that, uh, that's the world you live in where your desires and your needs trump all others. And that's why the church is often devalued. And I understand this also. It's why many Christians don't even realize that they're doing it. They've never thought of the church from the perspective of how God sees her and loves her and values her and exalts her and one day wants to see her coming. They don't see that. And so if your lack of commitment is rooted in ignorance that you didn't know that that's how God sold the church. Can I ask you to do this? 
Go to God and say, God, I am sorry for not studying your word and grasping an understanding of how valuable and central the local church is to what you are doing on planet earth today. Change my heart. Give me a new perspective on the church, which is the body of Christ. I think John Piper tweaks us a little bit when he says this. He says, it is easier to stay at home and watch TV, etc., etc., than to get together with and serve with others who are difficult. It is easier to stay at home and watch TV than to carry the burdens of others in prayers because prayer is work. Watching TV is self-centered amusement. But he says, God does not get glory in easy things. God does not get glory in easy things. God gets glory when you commit to his purposes. And, and to close, I want you to turn to Romans 15, just real quick, because there are two ver- three verses. I want to read these to you. Because the overarching purpose of the church is that God would be glorified. People would be drawn to Christ. That's the, the purpose for which we exist and which, for which we grow healthy and seek to serve and honor and help each other. Verse 5 of Romans 15, and I think this is in context, because in 14 he's talked about rifts that have formed in the body of Christ over the issue of meat offered to idols. And there's some judgment, and uh, the church is experiencing friction and starting to break apart, and he's calling them back. Don't think that your opinion is better than the opinion of others. Remember the gospel. Remember the gifts of God. Let them draw you to a place of humility. Verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ. Do you see this? So that with one heart and with one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How? Verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to what? Bring praise to God. Folks, the purpose of life is, I'll use a word that's theological, it is doxological. It is about bringing glory to God. It is not about your happiness. But here's a wonderful thought. When God is glorified by your life, I promise you, if you had the Spirit of God in your heart, you will be the happiest person you could ever desire to be. Now what that means is this. It means I may have to change my view of Sunday. It means Saturday night, I may have to set the clock a little earlier so I can get to church on time to prepare my heart to join in corporate worship. Folks, let me say this. When we are here together as a church body, faithfully gathered together, people come up to me and say, Pastor, it was good to see a number of people at church today. I know what they're saying. They like having the body of Christ together. And I believe that when we are together in that kind of a way, it glorifies God. It encourages others. If I drag in late, what am I saying to people? What am I saying? So, you might need to go to God and say, God, I haven't valued the church like you want me to. And be honest. And say, whatever changes you want to make in my heart in this regard, I want to make them. Because I want to love what you love, oh Lord. I want to serve what you served. I want to be like you. I want to be among my church as one who serves. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I I have a word that I must share with you, okay? Joining this church or any other church will not increase your chances of getting into heaven. Okay, and I want to be so clear on that this morning. 
We are not self-absorbed. We don't think that this is the best church in the county. If this is the church God wants you in, we're going to say praise God, and we're going to welcome you and embrace you and put you to work. Because we believe that's what God wants. Okay? We believe it's what God wants. And as you do that, you're going to find that God is glorified through your life. And when God is glorified through your life, I believe this with all my heart, there is no greater joy. No greater joy. And if you've never trusted Christ, God's gospel, it was what will give you an accurate measure of yourself. God's gospel, that the Son of God, perfect, shed his blood on Calvary's cross to pay the price for your sin so that you could be forgiven and set free. And... (laughs) And incorporated in his right. For whom he shed his blood. For whom he works earnestly to perfect and purify. Radiance. For the day when he comes. To take us to be with him. Folks, I can't think of anything else that I want to commit myself to like that. Because nothing else has such an eternal, enduring purpose. I hope the Phillies win. I do. (laughs) Can I tell you something though? To all you Yankees fans, who cares? Okay. We have something that isn't here today and gone tomorrow. We don't have a team that has to be, you know, out of the championship, uh, you know, like the Phillies were forever. Okay? I don't have to put up with that. God has gifted the church to make her effective. He's given us everything we need. What we need to do is commit to what he's committed to for his glory.